0: Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by economist, journalist, and renowned author, Tim Harford. We'll be discussing how data can help us understand the world around us and help us connect the dots. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Tim. Thanks. It's great to join you. So, Tim, you are prolific. You are on the BBC. You are on TED Talks. You are a novelist, an author. You are all over the place. It was very difficult to really get our arms around some of the things that you were thinking about. But there were some themes that started to jump out at me in terms of your writing. And one was about the messiness of the world and this idea that disorder – uh, can help us, and in fact, sometimes chaos helps us become better, helps us dig deeper. Uh, you're, you have a book called "Messy: The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives." Tell us a little bit more about this—the power of messiness.
1: Yes, I mean that there, there are all kinds of things in life that just don't lend themselves to being well structured, well ordered, uh, quantified, or, or sorted in any particular way, and and yet we are constantly trying to do so, I think, because it makes us comfortable. And, uh, of course, sometimes things do work better if you're able to have a system, if you're able to get them organised. But if you're dealing with something that can't be organised or can't be systematised, you're only going to make matters worse by trying to impose a structure that that doesn't work. So that's really what Messi is all about. And and I was looking for a story to really uh, kick off the book and really Capture some of the themes. I encountered the tale of Keith Jarrett's nineteen seventy-five jazz concert in Cologne. Jarrett's an amazing jazz pianist. He will he will just sit down at the piano alone and he will improvise, play whatever comes into his head. But in this particular instance, a young concert promoter by the name of Vera Brandes, just seventeen years old, had arranged this concert sell out concert 1400 people is a huge thing and there'd been a mix up with the piano and the piano that was on stage was a rehearsal model too small out of tune uh, keys were sticking it's really tinny sound far too small to really uh, fill the hall of the the Colne uh, Opera House and Jarrett initially refused to play, but then he, he thought better of it. He took pity, pity on this young kid who'd arranged this concert. He didn't want her to get into any trouble. And so he came back. He sat down at the piano that he thought was unplayable. And in front of 1,400 people, he gave the performance of his life. And it was because he was dealing with this very messy situation, with all of these obstacles and all of these problems, that he was finding new ways to play. And and he was absolutely present and absolutely at his creative peak. And I know that story sounds a bit, well, you know, that's just one, it's jazz and it's a genius, Keith Jarrett. Okay, he produced the performance of his life, but that's nothing to do with, with you and me. Well, you can basically find evidence for the same thing in the data of how people use the London Underground. The London Underground is an integrated system. It's integrated with the with the buses. It's integrated with the overground trains. And a few years ago, there was a 48-hour strike that shut down some of the underground stations while others were open. And three economists, uh, one of whom I know, were, were able to analyse all of the data and see how people responded to the strike. And what they found was you could see... Hundreds of thousands of people changing their plans because of the, because of the strike and travelling through the network in a different way. And then at the end of the 48 hours, many people went back again to the original commute. But tens of thousands of people never went back. They realised they had been doing the commute wrong their entire lives. And it was only this very brief disruption that... Nudge them into experimenting and into finding a better way to do things. So those those two examples of the of the underground strike and Keith Jarrett's Cone concert really typified the way that actually disruption and mess and problems they they, you know, they they always seem like a complete pain, but sometimes they really are an opportunity.
0: You have a wonderful phrase that you use: that chaos and frustration lead to innovation. Those are really good examples, I've, I've been thinking about how that same example that you just used about the London Underground seems to be popping up today with workplaces. So lots of things that we took for granted about our workplace are no longer the case. And, and thinking about what an office means and how important it is to go there, it seems like that same kind of idea around frustration and chaos could lead to some new innovation of how we work.
1: Yes, I think that the, the current situation where a lot of people are feeling very at risk in the workplace and a lot of other people are feeling very isolated because they're they're lucky enough to be able to work from home but i think for a lot of people it doesn't it doesn't feel that lucky you're cooped up you're you're denied social contact contact um that situation it is a little bit like the the tube strike on a grand scale uh, and and we're, we're scrambling to to figure out how to adjust and of course in many ways you would just say look the problem is real. The suffering is real. The sooner we can solve this and get back to the way things were before, the better. But I'm absolutely convinced that there will be technological changes that are accelerated. Uh, there will be new ways to do things that will be more widely embraced uh, as a result of this.
0: Hmm. So I, I'm, you know, one of the things that you bring up is the, the world is over, overwhelming, messy, um. And what is kind of a weird paradox about that is that as a, as a data person, as an analytics person, we like to find the signal in the noise. And, um, you've done a lot of thinking around how people get to their conclusions and what, what do people bring with them into the room that, that causes them to focus on some parts of that chaos as
1: opposed to others? Um, what have you found? Before I answer that question, I should say, I think, as a data scientist, we, any, or anyone working with numbers, anyone working with statistics, we have to be very conscious of the way that we are imposing order and structure on on a messy world mm-hmm. that the, the very fact of of moving from analog measurements that we live in an analog world to digital discrete measurements. There, there is always a, a loss of information and there's a distortion that happens there when we're, we're trying to cram vague or ambiguous categories into into something very precise. So something really simple like, um, I don't know, how many nurses work in America? And then you start going, well, how, well what's a nurse? Do, do, do midwives count as nurses? What about community health visitors? <laughs> Two half-time nurses. Is that one nurse or is that two nurses? And the answer is, well, it, it depends what question you want answering, because it could be either. Uh, so I think it's always worth bearing in mind. I mean, I'm a, I'm a geek. I love numbers. I love data. I love statistics. But it's, it's worth always bearing in mind the potential distortions and the potential losses as we move from this very rich, complex, messy, hard-to-define, ambiguous world into the more discrete and tidy categories that we need in order to be able to uh, to process information numerically. Um, so, sorry, that just want to make a link between my thinking about messiness and my thinking about statistics. But to come back to your question, which is about um, people's preconceptions and how they influence the 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 conclusions that they reach. What I have found is that again and again, you see people reaching the conclusion that they want to reach. Uh, Being led by their emotions, being led by wishful thinking, uh, being led sometimes by political reasoning, it can be overwhelmingly powerful. And one of the examples that's really stuck with me, because it's actually not about data at all, uh, it just goes to show that, because I think the lesson applies to data, is uh, situations where you see some of the world's leading art experts being led astray by forgers. And the reason that the the art experts can be led astray by forgers is because the art experts have preconceived ideas about paintings they think are out there in the world, uh, that they want to find, missing links, they, the, the old masters. Uh, an art expert will often have a view as to, well... This person, we, we've got no surviving paintings for ten years of his life. I wonder what he was doing. I wonder what he was painting. And the art experts will write essays about this, and the forgers will read the essays, and will will identify what it is that the art expert really wants to see, and the forger will paint that picture. <laughs> and there's some remarkable examples of this. And, and then you go, well, actually, it's it's the it's the very expertise, it's the the depth of the knowledge that actually leads the expert astray and somebody who knew a little bit less might be less likely to be fooled would just say well that doesn't really look very much like a Leonardo da Vinci painting does it or it doesn't see I've seen Vermeers that doesn't look like a Vermeer um, but the expert can find reasons to believe if he or she wants to believe. And that's very true in in statistical reasoning as well. And you you did a a podcast
0: with uh, um, probably one of the world's most famous uh, forecasting experts, uh, Philip Tetlock, and he introduced a concept called foxes and hedgehogs for this uh, kind of bias. It's not exactly the same thing, but I might equate it. Um, And there is a I guess this is anchored around the idea that uh, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And it's uh, it's the one thing that he or she knows might be a blinder, might be an obstacle for the person seeing something that uh, doesn't quite fit with their worldview.
1: And I think it's important to say that there's no, there's no right or wrong way to think. So foxes have become very fashionable because Philip Tetlock found that foxes are are great forecasters, or they're better forecasters than hedgehogs. Um, But hedgehogs, with their very um, deep uh, framework for looking at the world, they have a particular way of analysing problems, the hedgehogs. Uh, They can make enormous breakthroughs. So, for example, Einstein. Tetlock says Einstein was a hedgehog. He really thought about the world in a particular way. He went very deep. He took things to their logical conclusion, and he changed the world. Einstein was also spectacularly wrong about a couple of things and wouldn't, wouldn't let go of his misconceptions for decades, which is, is a cl- classic hedgehog behaviour. So hedgehogs can be absolutely the people you want working on a problem. But if the problem is one of forecasting in this world, which I think we're, we're agreeing is a messy place, forecasting big-picture geopolitical or macroeconomic trends where there's really so much going on there are so many things you can't possibly track them all and there's no possible framework which will accommodate everything that matters if if your task is forecasting in that kind of world you want to be a fox and the fox just you know knows a little bit of everything has you know has has read the politics has read the economics reads the New York Times reads the Economist reads obviously the best newspaper in the world the FT (laughs) uh, and 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 in particular is constantly asking himself or herself uh, what if i'm wrong is there another way to think about this um what what would what would somebody else think about this problem can i get a second opinion these these are very foxy ways of thinking they're not very hedgehoggy ways of thinking and and they they really help in this very difficult task of, of forecasting complex events um
0: you've recently been trying to apply some of these principles to the covid outbreak uh, how do we start to think about a world that is similarly overwhelmed by lots of chaos and numbers, lots of biases that people uh, bring to their decision-making processes? So what kind of uh, general conclusions are you drawing uh, based on some of your uh, analysis about how we're doing as a world, as a nation-state, UK versus uh, the US, my home country? Well,
1: the, the first conclusion that I draw is that numbers can really help us understand the world. That's so important. We've got no chance of making sense of the world without the statistical lens. And and that I think has come into focus with COVID in a in a very painful way where we realize there are some very important facts that we d- we don't currently have. So initially it was where is this virus? Who has this virus? How many cases are there? How is it spreading? When does it spread? And in order to start answering this, these questions, of course, you needed the, the physical infrastructure of, of doctors and nurses and um, cotton swabs and reagents for testing. But you also need, needed the statisticians to, and the epidemiologists to gather and, and to process this data. You,
0: um, you bring up an interesting conundrum for us. We have uh, a world of messy data, we have a lack of understanding of what these terms actually mean in the first place. We are bringing our own personal biases to these analyses. Oh boy, sounds uh, sounds challenging. Um you you offer a solution though. You offer the idea that we should be solving with humility, that we should bring a little bit of almost childish wonder to the analyses that we're doing so that we can keep an open mind. And you quote uh, John Maynard Keynes and say, economists should manage themselves, uh, they should be thought of as competent people on a level with a dentist.
1: Yes. Humble, competent people on a level with with a dentist. Yes. Yes, he used the word humble, which is ironic because John Maynard Keynes was many, many things. Uh, Humble was not one of them. (laughs) Um, He didn't have a lot to be humble about, to be honest. He was a smart guy. Yeah. So solving with humility I wrote a book a few years ago called Adapt, which is all about trial and error and the importance of trial and error processes in in really in making any kind of complex solution to any kind of complex problem. You see it in evolution. Evolution is a highly, uh, you know, is a trial and error process. You see it in market economies. When market economies work well, there's a, there's a lot of churn, there's a, a lot of failure, a lot, also a lot of success, a lot of experimentation. When market economies are working badly, it's often because you get to a situation, for example, the classic in the financial crisis was too big to fail. When you're too big to fail, when you've, you've moved away from an, an experimental process. So that's, that's one ingredient of solving problems with humility is the idea that you, you try something and uh, it may or may not work. It's the principle behind the randomised controlled trial. We don't know. We therefore let us carry out the fairest possible test that we can carry out and and therefore expand our knowledge. Um, But it doesn't have to be a a very cleverly, tightly, formally controlled, randomised trial, pre-registered, double-blind, all of the things that ideally we want. You don't have to do that in order to try and solve problems with humility, The kind of thing that designers do um, with with prototyping and iteration. That you know, that's a similar thing. It's not quite the same thing, but you try something out, see how it looks, see how it works, see how it feels, see what you learn. Don't commit to it too much, uh, and hopefully the next version will be better. It's the same principle that any writer uh, adopts when he or she is thinking that well, the first draft isn't going to be very good, but I'll put my thoughts down and I'll come back to it and I'll edit it later. And when I when I'm talking like this, that seems really common sense. I mean, who could disagree with that? Mm-hmm. But actually, there's a lot of pressure on us not to solve problems in this humble way. Uh, in in the political arena, there's pressure to be very quick and very bold in your pronouncements and uh, always claim that you're right. Very limited rewards for acknowledging that you were mistaken about anything. Very limited rewards for gathering data that might prove that you were wrong about something. Uh, Better to just double down and say you were right all along. We don't want to think about the prospect of failure. We don't want to think about the fact that we might be wrong. It's painful to contemplate the fact that things might not go well we would do better if we went in with with baby steps.
0: Your, Your comparison to other parts of life is such a good one. And what I started to realize within the four walls of a corporation is that the kind of editing that you are describing from a novelist, we started to apply to software development probably about five years ago at scale when we started to introduce Agile. Agile is is really around the idea of failing fast. It's around the idea of delivering something, allowing people to opine on it, and uh, course correcting quickly. And the new, uh, movement at at companies and click is no exception is data ops, which is the same principle, uh, from an analytics perspective. I'd like to show you something. I hate that. Great. I'm glad that I know now, as opposed to three weeks from now. Uh, so I do think that there's an interesting movement, um, to embrace some of the things that you're talking about. How do we start to understand things in bite-sized pieces, course-correct their understanding, uh, fail fast and fail forward in the same way that we do in other walks of life?
1: Uh, yes. The more information you have, the earlier you have it, the better the project is going to be in the end. But um, it's, it's hard to do. So you don't want to show people stuff that's, that's not quite right. And I, I always have this as as a writer... I should be showing my editors much earlier drafts. It just goes against the grain. I want to I want to get it as good as I possibly can before I show it to them. And of course very often there's some substantial structural issue or some problem. I'm gonna to have to get rid of a lot of my hard work, and if only I'd had the courage to show them the half done job, I, I would have I would have done better. I would have got the feedback when I when I really needed it. But it, it's just tough to do. So you have a book that'll be coming out in 2020. I, I have. Um, British listeners to this podcast m- may want to know that I have a book called The Next 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy coming out. But I think for, for American listeners, um, the, the, the next big project is, is a book called The Data Detective uh, and and in, in the UK, that, that the same book is going to be called How to Make the World Add Up. You can see I'm throwing all these book titles at, at you. It's The world is a messy place. But in America, the data detective. And the argument I'm making in the, de- the data detective is the argument that I think I've made quite forcefully in our conversation, which is um, statistics are a tool that we can use to understand the world. They are, for many problems, the only tool that we really have to understand the world. Just as an astronomer needs the telescope uh, or, or a, uh, a, an electron microscope is an invaluable tool, if we're understanding economic or bi- biological or social problems, we need data. We need statistics. It's the only tool that we have to, to see some of these problems. And if we turn our backs on that tool out of doubt or fear or because we, we think it's going to show us something we don't want to see or because we think it's full of tricks uh, then that's a tragedy and, and I'm urging people to take statistics seriously and encouraging people to realise that the the questions you need to ask to make sense of statistical claims are mostly not actually complicated technical questions. They are often very common sense they just require you know a little bit of intelligence and quite a lot of curiosity about the way the world really is if you've got that curiosity and you're willing to ask some common sense questions rather than just lapse into whatever it is that you want to believe you can indeed make sense of statistics without a great deal of of technical training well tim it's been a real pleasure having
0: you here thanks so much for being with us
1: It's been my pleasure too. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. In times like these, where the numbers are overwhelming, where statistics is hard to understand, it's nice to have a voice like Tim Harford's, reminding us to stay patient, stay humble, stick to it, and realize that you don't need to be a data scientist to understand the math in front of you and make critical decisions for you, your community, your country, and your world.